invite you to take your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer before we look at his word together. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God. A God who is worthy of our worship, a God to whom we can bring our cares and concerns and requests. And I pray that as we come now to your word, that we would come longing to better understand the God we serve, and so that we might better follow and honor you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. When I went to camp as elementary and junior in high school, I remember uh, we would sometimes do a kind of a silly song chant kind of a thing. And it would be, you'd go through it, and then at the end, you'd say, same song, second verse, a little bit louder, and a little bit worse, right? And then you'd kind of do something a little bit crazy. In a sense, Genesis 4 is that. It's similar to what we saw in Genesis 3. And yet, it's worse. That as sin has entered the world, it isn't just staying at the same level at which it's entered. Sin is causing humanity to fall in a downward spiral. spiral. And we're seeing greater manifestations of sin and greater consequences of sin. And Genesis 4, we find a familiar account in many ways, the story of Cain and Abel. And if you've been in church any length of time, you perhaps have heard this story. Maybe you've taught this story in Sunday school. What do we see in this account? Certainly we do see sin's destructiveness, and that's something we'll highlight as we go through. The very beginning of this chapter, we find the account that Adam has relations with his wife Eve, and they conceive and give birth to Cain, the first baby boy ever born. And can you imagine that experience? It's hard enough to go through that process when other people can tell you what to expect. They have no idea what's coming. And so they get this baby boy, and, and what does she do? Well, she says, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And I think here we see, just like last week we saw with Adam, responding in faith to God's promise that, yes, the, the serpent, actually we saw this two weeks ago, the serpent would crush, uh, would, would bruise the heel of the, the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that she's now expressing her faith and trust in the Lord. And that now she's beginning to see God's promises being fulfilled. In verse 2, she gave birth to his brother Abel, which, which kind of clues us in. The focus is a little bit more on Cain than on Abel here, because it's his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so we have a shepherd and a farmer. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now that phrase, it came about in the course of time. If you have the NASB, you'll see a note there. It might be able to translate something like the end of days, which, which may be saying on the Sabbath, the time of worship. I think the language does point to the idea that this was not the first time that this had happened. 
that it's not as if this is the very first time Cain and Abel brought an offering. Perhaps there had even been some regular occurrence of this happening. But this one in particular is significant in part because of what happens. Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. That he looked favorably on Abel and his offering, but did not look favorably on Cain and on his offering. And why? What was the difference? And there's been various suggestions that have been given for why this was the case. An early suggestion is that because Cain worked and tilled the ground to produce the offering and, and Abel just, you know, he's the flocks, the flocks kind of are growing on their own, that Cain was bringing something of his own effort to God, whereas Abel was bringing something that God had actually produced on his behalf. Brothers say, well, the problem was that Abel was offering a blood sacrifice. And that was what God expected and, and uh, had called for, whereas Cain was simply offering the fruit of the ground. But I don't think either of those really make sense. For one thing, there's no indication in the text that that's really what's going on. Secondly, as you go throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, you'll find that actually God sometimes asks for offerings from the ground. And so it's not as if the fact that you could give something from the ground is itself an insufficient or unacceptable offering to the Lord. So why did God look favorably on Abel's offering and not on Cain's? I think there's some indications in the text of why this might be the case. One of the indications is, is how they are described. Cain, it simply says, he brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And as you go throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, you do see when, when God mentions bringing a, a grain offering or, or an offering of the, the, the fruits of the ground, it's always the first fruits. There's very clearly an indication he wants the best. And that's also tied in with the fat. And whereas for people, it may not be great for animals, you wanted fat. And this was a, a sign of, of plenty and a sign of, of wealth. And so he's giving to the Lord in a sense of his best. So there, that might be part of what's going on here. As well, I think it's important to recognize it's not just that God looked at Abel's offering and had it with favor and looked at Cain's offering without favor. Their offerings are tied to them. It says he had regard for Abel and his offering and did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And so in a sense, it's not just the offering. It's the person. And in fact, in verse 7, we see God mentioning to Cain, if you do well, versus if you do not do well. And so in some sense, it's tied in with their obedience, doing what God had called them to do. And I think we get a little bit more indication from the New Testament as well. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, we find that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, and though, through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. 
And so why is it that God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's? I think the answer is because Abel brought it with a heart of obedience and faith. And Cain didn't. Certainly the nature of Abel's offering demonstrates that, that Abel was coming with the best. Whereas perhaps Cain, it seems, was coming just to kind of go through the ritual. As you look through the rest of the Old Testament, it is pretty clear you can bring the right offering, but it doesn't really help you if you don't come with the right heart. That God's not looking just for the sacrifice of an animal. He's looking for a broken and contrite heart. He wants someone who's repentant. He wants someone who is coming in faith, is trusting what God has said and therefore responding in obedience to that. And so God doesn't say, hey, as long as you go through the rituals, you're fine. And it seems that Cain's just going through the rituals. Cain has no heart for the Lord. And therefore God has no regard for Cain. And that I think is evidenced in part by Cain's response. Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And in verse six, the Lord comes to Cain. And again, begins with a question. Why are you angry? Just like we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter three, it's basically an opportunity for Cain to to recognize I shouldn't be angry or I'm angry because you didn't accept my gift, but it's my fault you didn't accept my gift. And why is your countenance fallen? Which perhaps helps us to see that often our face is a reflection of our heart. It isn't always the case, but sometimes you can kind of see what's actually going on in someone's heart. So if I might just make a point of application, perhaps consider as we gather to worship, whether or not your heart that desires to worship the Lord is reflected in your countenance as we gather here. Confess, I do wonder sometimes as you look at someone who stands sullenly as we're singing praise to the Lord. And again, I understand that everyone's face has slightly different ways of expressing themselves. And yet, what one to consider is our heart really ready to worship the Lord? Why is your countenance fallen? Verse seven, here's the reality. If you do well, would not your countenance be lifted up? There's, there's some debate about what that phrase means. If you're seeing the NASB, you'll see the italics there. Your countenance is, is supplied, but I think it is rightly supplied. In a sense, if you do what's well, you're going to be accepted. The problem that you're facing is going to go away. If you do what is right, if you in faith follow me in obedience, there'll be no reason for you to have your countenance fallen because your sacrifice will be accepted. And if you do not do well, if you don't follow in obedience, here's a warning for you. Sin is crouching at the door. Language certainly gives us the picture of some kind of beast right outside the tent that you don't see. It's hiding. In many ways, it might even bring up the image of the serpent from chapter three, a snake that you don't see right outside your door, ready to pounce on you. And sin's desire is for you. Remember, we saw a similar phrase in chapter three, talking about the the wife to the husband. It's It's a desire to rule you. It's a desire to dominate. It's a desire to devour you. Sin has a very strong desire to destroy you. And yet, at the end of verse 7, 
You must master it. Cain, the path you are on is not inevitable. You are not walking with me. And therefore your offering is not accepted. And if you continue down this path, sin will destroy you. You can master it. You can fight against sin. There's no temptation that's taken you. That which is common to man. And God is faithful and offer you a way of escape. You can overcome sin if you follow after me. And how does Cain respond? Verse 8. He does not master sin. Cain told his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. That rather than turning from his anger, he allowed that anger to fester. He allowed that anger to be directed toward his brother, and he rises up and kills his brother. And consider, Adam and Eve aren't really mentioned during this section of the story. They're still around because at the end of the story, they know what happened. And they're now seeing some of the consequences of their sin. They're seeing their son be murdered by their other son. They begin to see the horrible nature of sin. John in 1 John 3 points to this as in a sense that the prime example of hatred for one another. 1 John 3 and verse 11, he says this, this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That he hated his brother for doing what was right, and therefore he killed him. This becomes the prime example and a sense of those who do not love God and therefore do not love their brothers. They do not love their neighbors because they do not love God. In verse 9, we find God confronting Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, again a question, where is Abel, your brother? And since not that much different than when God comes to Adam and says, where are you? But how does Cain respond? He lies. I do not know. You know exactly where he is. And sin is beginning to compound and multiply. And sin adding on to sin. And here he rejects his responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer Cain should recognize is, of course I am. There's a kind of obligation that I have to other members of my family that I am responsible for others. Cain is rejecting that reality, rejecting God's plans and, and purposes. And in verse 10, God, in a sense, moves from questions to accusations. And then to what have you done is less a question and more a statement of, of exclamation. Because the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That, is, that language is, is saying it's crying out for vengeance. 
is crying out because of the oppression and injustice that has been done against him. And so verse 11, here is your punishment, Cain. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This is the first statement of, in which a particular person is cursed. In chapter 3, it mentions the fact that the, the serpent is cursed, the ground is cursed. Here, Cain himself is cursed. And part of that curse is now, even though he was a farmer, even though he was a tiller of the ground, now the ground will no longer yield its strength to you, verse 12. You, and why? Perhaps because you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. In order to farm, you have to stick around for a while. You gotta be able to plant and allow that to, to be uh, tilled and, and cared for and ultimately produce fruit for you. And God says, it's not going to happen anymore. And instead of you ever being in one place, you're now going to be separated from community. In some ways, this is a fitting punishment. That he's saying, I'm not my brother's keeper. I have no obligations to anyone else. And God says, then you won't enjoy any of the benefits of being with anyone else. You'll be cast out from society. And in verse 13, Cain responds, my punishment is too great to bear. Not, oh, how could I have done this sin? Not, how could I have done this wickedness? Not, God, you are certainly just in your judgment. But God, you're being unfair. It wasn't that bad, God. And what's he talking about? I mean, you can maybe understand it a little bit when you're talking to children and they've done something and they're like, oh, you know, this isn't, this is so unfair. He just killed his brother. How could he possibly say, this is too much? And what does he point to? Four things. You've driven me this day from the face of the ground. And from your face, I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. In verse 15, God responds. And it's interesting. In his response, I think we see both justice and mercy being demonstrated. We see justice being demonstrated because he doesn't actually lessen Cain's punishment at all. He doesn't say, you know what? I was being a little too hard. Let me take back what I said. What he does do is he says, no, Cain, you're wrong about that last part. Because what, what did Cain say at the end? Whoever finds me will kill me. Did God say that was his punishment? No. Is that possible? Yeah. And so God in his mercy says, I won't let that happen. I'm not taking anything I said, but I'm not going to let that happen. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. Now, perhaps you might wonder, why doesn't God let him be killed? And I have to confess, the answer ultimately is, I don't know. I don't know why God doesn't have Cain killed. 
I did see a suggestion that I think makes some sense. So we continue to look through the book of Genesis. We, we eventually get to chapter nine in which we find God, the Noahic covenant in which God establishes government. And he, and he gives government the right of the sword. And now whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. At this point in time, he has an established government. And so who's going to have to kill Cain? It would probably have to be Adam and Eve. And so perhaps it was God's mercy to them to say, I'm not going to ask you to enact justice on your son. And what would the other option be? Someone else takes matters into their own hands. God doesn't want that either. And so he says, no, we're not going to increase violence, but you are going to live the rest of your life under the consequences of this sin. So verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I can't say this for sure, but I think the language, especially when you compare it to chapter three, indicates Cain is willing in his going out here. Chapter three was God describes Adam and Eve being put out of the garden. He's, he puts them out. And whereas God has banished Cain, the language doesn't say, so God put him out. It says Cain went out. I think Cain doesn't want to be with the Lord. He went out from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, essentially the land of, of wandering east of Eden. And in verses 16 to 24, we find what happens of Cain's offspring. Cain had relations with his wife. And you say, well, where did his wife come from? I, I think probably they were already married at this point of time. And where did his wife come from? Well, the answer is it had to probably be his sister. Because those are the only people around. And at this point in time, there isn't the concerns about incest that come up later for a variety of reasons. And so it's probably his wife, and he has a son, Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. You say, wait a minute, I thought Cain was supposed to be a wanderer. How is he building a city? And again, I, I don't know that I can say for certain. But I think in light of what we have seen of Cain so far, that he's probably building the city in defiance of God. And perhaps, as well, you, you tend to build cities in part to protect you. You put up walls and fences, and it allows you to, to have a community that might protect you. And so perhaps he's saying, I'm not sure God's really going to carry out his end of the bargain. Because what's been clear so far in chapter 3, Cain doesn't believe God. So he's probably acting in sin here in doing this. And we see that sin continue on as you come down to verse 19. Six generations later, Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. And this is the first time we find polygamy in the Old Testament. A violation of God's design and marriage of one man and one woman. And it's clear with Lamech and it's really clear in every other part. Time we see this happen in Genesis, it never works out very well. You have sinful people engaging in it and you have destruction within the family resulting from it. And Lamech has three sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. Jabel is father of livestock and, and I think 
We'd say, well, wasn't Abel a shepherd? And, and, and we'd say, well, this is, I think, more broad. Perhaps not just sheep and goats and cattle, but maybe even donkeys and camel. It's, it's a broader kind of word for what he's involved in. And Jubal begins to, to form instruments, stringed instruments, wind instruments. So when your elementary students practice their recorders at home, you can thank him. And then Tubal-Cain becomes a forger. And, and there are many people who wrestle with what is said there in verse 22, uh, the forger of implements of bronze and iron, in part because they say iron wasn't around at this time. And I will confess, I can't say this definitively, but I personally don't see a reason to think that iron couldn't have been around at this time. And evidence of that reality was wiped out by the flood. So I tend to think there was probably pretty significant advances in civilization that happened in part because in chapter five, we'll realize people were living for a really long time. And so they had lots of time to learn and develop and pass on what they had learned to the next generation. And so I, it wouldn't surprise me if they actually had pretty advanced civilization by the time you get to, to Lamech and to his sons. But certainly what we do see here is a growth of civilization. And it's interesting that this line in which we see this civilization happening is the ungodly line of Cain. Because Lamech is certainly not set up as any kind of model. We'll see that in a moment. And it shouldn't surprise us that often technological advancement, scientific discoveries, great works of art are done by those who do not know God and do not worship God. Because what we do see is God's common grace, that he sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And he in his common grace allows people to enjoy this world and the goodness of this world, even as they do not worship him. In verse 23, we find a song from Lamech. A song in which we see right along with this growth in civilization is a growth in sin. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. And perhaps this is an indication that we're beginning to see what was pointed to in chapter three, that yes, the wife will desire her husband, but he will master her. That far too often he will have a domineering spirit. It does seem that Lamech is in a sense having that kind of attitude toward his wives. And what does he say? I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Boy's probably a little bit too strong. It is possible that the word is a boy. Certainly it's, it could be a young man. And there is an indication this is not someone who's his equal. And Lamech is boasting in his violence. Yes, Cain killed his brother, but I killed someone for just harming me in a small way. And if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77 fold. Lamech doesn't have the concern that Cain does. Cain says, someone's going to kill me. And he needs God's protection. And Lamech says, I don't need God's protection. I'll avenge myself. And so we see a godless heritage coming from Cain. Sin increases, destruction increases. And yet at the end of the chapter, Adam had relations with his wife again. She gave birth to a son named him Seth. 
But she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, him also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think that last phrase is pointing to one of two things and perhaps an element of both. I think most likely it's pointing to that they're worshiping the Lord. They're calling upon him. They're turning to him for salvation. They're establishing a a right pattern of worship. There also might be an indication that they are proclaiming the name of the Lord in this, that they are telling others about the truth of God. But certainly it seems to be, at this point in time, a much smaller segment. You contrast it with people who are doing these great civilizations, and yet then you have some people who are calling on the name of the Lord. So what do we find in this text? We do see that sin has devastating consequences. It harms individuals. It destroys families. It undermines societies. And yet, in the midst of this, we see God's grace and mercy. After God does not have regard for Cain, he initiates the interaction with Cain. Cain doesn't come to God and say, what should I do? God comes to Cain and says, look, this is what you need to do. And he graciously warns him. And he tells him exactly what's expected of him. And he warns of the consequences of sin. And we do see through all of this that God is continuing to carry out his promise. That God does not take the mighty things of this world. In a sense, if you look at these two families, you might be saying, well, I want the one that's got you know, livestock and music and, and uh, metallurgy. But this other one has the worship of the Lord. And God doesn't take the firstborn, king. He takes the thirdborn. Seth, that God chooses the weak things of this world to confound the things which seem mighty. And despite Satan and man's sin, God's promises are still being fulfilled. 1 John 3 says, Cain was of the evil one. And what we see already in this chapter is, yes, there is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That Cain, the seed of the serpent, is attacking the seed of the woman. And yet, he does not snuff it out. Because God gives them Seth and Enosh. And so the seed and the promise is still being continued. Finally, let's, let's consider for a moment something else that Scripture points to from this text. That the blood of Abel crying out from the ground tells us that God is a God who takes account of every injustice. That Cain perhaps thought, God doesn't see it. Yet the blood of Abel cries out and says, no, God will judge. But Hebrews 12, 24 says this, that we have Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Because Abel's blood says 
God is judge. What does Jesus' blood say? God is savior. Abel's blood says there needs to be a debt paid. And Jesus' blood tells us that debt has been paid through the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the warnings of sin. Would help us to see that sin is crouching at our door, that wants to destroy us, but that by your grace we can master it. Would help us not to pursue the achievements and advances of this world that we would seek after you. We would call on the name of the Lord. We thank you for the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent and whose blood can speak for us that we have been forgiven. We pray this in his name.